0: Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast, I'm your host Ben James I'm joined as ever by rugby correspondent Stefan Thomas. Steph, how are you doing mate?
1: Yeah, I'm just about alright after a tough weekend of uh, European rugby for the Welsh Clubs but I'm sure we'll uh, discuss that in some more depth as Uh, uh, as this podcast goes on.
0: It it was tough but there was was two victories, I mean,
2: (laughs) compared to most weekends in
0: Welsh rugby that's... You know, yeah. before before this weekend, we were counting derby wins as the, the, the main sort of source of victories uh, for, for the Welsh side. So, um,
1: yeah, I suppose I'm typical Welsh rugby mentality—a glass half empty rather than half full, which is a bit of a problem, probably.
0: No, absolutely. Um, as I say, we will get onto Europe in a bit, but we're joined uh, by a special guest today—a uh, man who's very well placed to discuss what's going right and what's going wrong in in particular with welsh rugby at the minute the author of uh, a new book welsh rugby what's going wrong simon williams uh simon how you doing mate very good thanks ben how are you i'm i'm very well um i mean i suppose the first question is how did you manage to condense what's gone wrong with welsh rugby into, into 10 chapters in one book
2: yeah that's that's quite quite the question quite the challenge um I've had a few people asking me whether it's kind of you know like war and peace or is it coming out in eight volumes that kind of thing you know um but um yeah it's kind of condensed into about fifty thousand words in all and um so the way I, the way i tried to approach it was that i wanted to try and put the the story of what's been going wrong in the last few years in kind of the context of the last 40 years or so um for a number of reasons really you know sort of like the end of the end of that that period where Wales led the world, um, you know, the decline that we've seen over the through the eighties of the national team, the club teams, restructuring, all of the things that happened there, um, and also it's kind of my my memory as well. I'm kind of of an age where I I kind of remember going to games in the eighties. Don't remember the seventies, unfortunately. So don't remember those great days. Um, so it was quite a challenge to get that that forty years into some kind of some kind of order, really. So um, yeah, so so I was set about it by. Uh, doing a lot of desk research. i used to I still do write for, for Glad Rugby for the blog. Um and uh so that was a good resource. Then I've I've bought dozens of of old yeah, rugby animals. I've got the, you know all of the Rothmans and all of the Welsh Brewers and most of the buyers you views, so although 2003, 4 seems to be missing. Nobody seems to have that, it seems to have vanished. Um and even the Playfair. So I've got all of these uh, together. Um discovered the Wayback Machine where uh, you can just find anything that's ever been on the internet, basically, um, went there um, and did lots of research there and then and then supplemented it with some interviews then, which I think, I hope, um, adds to the uh, to the text. So it was kind of an overall challenging process, started end of February. Um, final version went to the publishers in early November and then it was out on the 20th of November.
0: I suppose the, sometimes the biggest fear with uh, these sort of books is, is with Welsh rugby, you can almost be a out of date very quickly can't you. Absolutely that and um so so the the you know, the 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 book
2: was coming um the week after or the or the first contact actually by the by the publishers it came the week after the Wales England game if you're gonna remember what was happening at the time. Um you we just had the the end performance or the, the poor performances of the, of the Wales men's team at the end of twenty twenty two and lost to George into Italy. Um and then uh, so and then when Pivak getting sacked, Warren Gatland coming back. You had the region struggling to perform as well. Um, then you had the BBC Wales investigates program into the culture of, of misogyny and racism and homophobia, uh, homophobia within the union. Um, and then we had the reports about the the absence of a. Uh, also, so that led directly, obviously, to the resignation of the chief executive of the WIU. Um, and then you had the um, the reports about the the difficulties in in agreeing at the PRA. So. You know, the, the, there was no certainty of the players. The regions couldn't offer contracts to the players. Around seventy odd were coming out of out of contract in the summer. Didn't know where they were going to be, and all of the impact that had on you know, on you know the the prospects of those players, the health of those players, the mental health of the players. That was a serious issue. And we had all of the, the rumblings around the women's game as well, um, bubbling in, in, underneath all of that. And then, so then, and then the threat of the strike of the men's team. Then the week of the England game. The game did go ahead, and you kind of think, right. That's kind of things are kind of resetting. We've got an agreement that's almost in place. The heads of terms had been agreed. You had that famous quote by Nigel Walker, who's interim chief exec, saying that he would hold the regions feet to the fire to you know uh, and uh, compel them to offer contracts to players. Well, that wasn't it. You know, from there, then we had you know the, the continued poor performances in the Six Nations. You know, Gatland wasn't able to work his miracle this time. Um, then you had players suddenly retiring, Alan Wynne-Jones and Justin Tipperick named in the World Cup's training squad and then retiring. You had players who had intended to be available for the World Cup, finding that they had to sign contracts with clubs in France or Japan, which meant that they wouldn't be available. So we had you know, people like Reese Webb and Corey Hill essentially withdrew. Ross Moriarty asked not to be considered. From the first instance, we had players who, because of the uncertainty, had left. People like Joe Hawkins who would now be ineligible. Um, and then, of course, during the autumn, then we've had obviously had the World Cup, but the improved performances there, uh, in part at least. But then, underneath all of that, you had the Rafferty inquiry, which was which was working away. Um, and so, we so I didn't, I wasn't able to include. So, even though I finally finished the book after Wheels' exit from the World Cup, and that was only you know less than well, less than two months ago, we still had. After that, you know the, the publication of the Rafferty report. We had um, the new AGM and the new board um, set up by the by the union, uh, and all of the issues that come out of that. So there's kind of never a, there's never a dull moment in Welsh rugby. There's always something happening. A lot of it is bad, <laughs> quite often, but um, you know it's um, yeah it's kind of an ongoing challenge. Really.
1: Yeah, you mentioned there that um, obviously Warren Gatland couldn't work as magic. During the reasonably well in the World Cup, but during the Six Nations, you're one of the um, voices that have, even when Wales are winning grand slams and, and doing well, you know, in in, in, in the Six Nations under Warren the, the first time he was here. And obviously, credit to Warren, but a lot of people were saying, you know, lads, this is papering over the cracks. Unless everything underneath is, is fixed and is stronger, then the roof's just going to cave in on the house. You know, are we. Do you think we're at that stage now that it doesn't really matter how good the coach is, this coach in the national side, unless the regions are strong, they're properly funded, the academies are working, etc. Then, you know, do you think everything that yourself and others have have warned the union about has finally caught up with them?
2: Um, yeah, I think as you say, sort of on on, um, on glad rugby, I think we've been accused of being. Pretty miserable for <laughs> the last kind of last several years when Wales were doing quite well, you know. So I mean, you, you can't take away, um, you know. I think it's five titles that Wales won between two thousand eight and two thousand and twenty one, including the one that Pivac uh, Pivac's team won in twenty twenty one. You know, two World Cup semi final appearances, you know, and, and all of that. Um, and you can't belittle that because that was a significant achievement, and there is a lot that good coaching can do to. To cover for deficiencies elsewhere, but I think the concern that that I had um, for a number of years really was that the there was a major shift in emphasis and a tip of in the balance of power between Union and the regions um, in in kind of the, the late two thousands and then through the twenty tens, where you know Team Wales was kind of given everything that it needed. The community game was kind of being fenced and protected financially, at least. Although there are a number of issues in, in, at that level of the game, but then you had a situation where it was the regions, the professional regions, that were getting getting squeezed. And so, I think th- th- the concern that, that I had was that that would eventually tell that eventually the game would uh, kind of implode because we weren't nourishing the roots of the game, we weren't nourishing the professional tier. And I think that's where we are now. With that said, I mean, Gatland did manage to turn um, the performances around during the World Cup. were some good finishes there, so there is something to be said for good coaching. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we're in a state now. I think because of the long-term underfunding and lack of planning.
1: Yeah. Um, so, so in terms of like, what in, say your your RBT uni, right? You start in your new job January the first. What's the first thing? Well, I know there's more than one thing. What What are the key things do you think for this new Welsh Rugby Union board, which we hope is different to the to what's come before? You know, is more diverse, more um, better skill sets, cetera. What do you think are the key things that they need to do to get the game on as a whole on, on back on the right track? Um, I
2: think there are some encouraging signs from what they've been saying. So, as you say, Abi Tierney isn't. Officially, yet although you know, she's fanning the new year, has been involved in certain things. She was available around the time that the Rafferty report was was released, for instance. Um, but Richard collier Colleywood, the the new chair, he's been quite vocal, um, and and the kind of things that they're saying are quite encouraging, and that they are emphasising the need for the for the WAU to act strategically, um, and and. The, first of all, to develop a new strategy. There was a strategy that was developed six or seven years ago by Gareth Davis and Martin Phillips, which was part implemented but not fully implemented and certainly hasn't been for the last few years, it seems. Um, So getting that in place is is a very important uh, thing. The fact that we now have a board of professional, independent voices with representation from the community game and the professional game as well, obviously, which is very important, but the, the board seems to be better skilled now. There is, a, there is a range of skills and experiences on it. So they will be better able to challenge the executive, which means that the executive will need to perform. Um, so all of that is is encouraging. And then in terms of the professional game, um, I think they have been keen. Um, Ambitini and, and Richard Colley would have been very keen to stress that that level of the game, the professional tier, the four professional clubs or regions, or whatever we're going to call them, that we have, are crucial they're vital to the development of the game in Wales, and and you know the the national men's team will not be successful in their view. It seems unless the professional game is a success, and that's going to take um, a collaborative effort, but it's also going to take investment. And it, you know it, is, it does sound quite positive, I think.
1: Yeah, ov- obviously, um, but but that's the key thing as well. Is it's, it's not obviously the the men's national team or both the women's and the men's national team is the pinnacle of the game in Wales. But, as a journalist, and I know a lot of fans would agree, we we want to see the Ospreys, the Scarlet, Cardiff, competing for silverware again because people do forget that, you see, it winds me up, you see it on Twitter, and, well, X as it's called now, and on Facebook, that, you know, people say, "Oh, you know, these regions are useless, they've done nothing. But, it wasn't always like it is now either, because at the start, you know, you had the Ospreys, you had the Galacticos period there. Cardiff won the Challenge Cup and you know, the Scarlets had their moments, but it's not just about the national teams, though, is it? We want these professional clubs to be playing at a high level to keep people engaged in the game and and hopefully compete for silverware. So presumably, that's something that that you you, you address in your book as well, and that you you want to see
2: yeah i think one of the themes of the book really is um is is the overemphasis on the national team and especially the men's national team um which is to the detriment of of every other tier of the game really and and that's partly understandable because you know for probably most supporters most of the people who will be turning up for the six nations matches in cardiff um in a few months um may not watch any professional rugby at all. It may be just just whales that they watch. And you know, you know, I, you hear lots of people saying, oh, the you know the rugby starting in February, isn't it? Kind of thing. You know, because the Six oh. Nations is about to start. Um so there is that over overemphasis. Um and, and that's the problem really because while the Wales men's team has been performing, which it has, you know, can't get away from that over the last 10, 15 years. Um you know, that's kind of papered over the cracks, and that's diverted people, I think, from considering what's going on at every other level of the game. You know, And to say even at the community level, there's, there's huge unhappiness about the way that the game's been governed. Um, but at the professional level, those teams have been allowed to wither. So, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the, the early years of, of regionalism, or whatever we call this, new the, the system that was instituted 20 years ago you had a lot of Welsh success. You know, you had the um, Scarlet on the very first title and, and four of the top five teams were Welsh. I think five of the top six were Welsh, actually all of the five teams from Wales were in the top six. Uh, it was only Ulster who were up in, up there uh, in amongst them. Um, you know, the Ospreys won the next season. They've won several tournaments, uh, several Celtic leagues since, um, you know, the Anglo-Welsh tournaments of the, the late 2000s. Those were really competitive, really well regarded and, um, and you know the teams were competing in Europe. You know we had the Scarlets getting to semi-finals in, in 2007, Cardiff in 2009. You were you know a, a penalty shootout kick away from the final, which and we would have had a good chance there. Um, but then it was then really that the the shift in balance happened, and you know the, the emphasis became all about Team Wales and drifted away from supporting that professional tier, um, which meant that they became less less successful. There was an attempt in the mid-2010s to try to rectify that. So we had uh, a new administration trying to bring a new approach together, making sure that the teams were properly funded and and differentiating between the teams as well. So, you know, the Scarlets were becoming a strong team in the mid-2010s, and the union tried to support that by bringing in this differentiated funding model. So it was kind of, you know, the Scarlets now, they're they're competitive in the in the Celtic League, Pro 12, Pro 14, as it was they now need to be supported to to challenge in Europe. You know, the Ospreys and Cardiff were good teams in the in the Celtic League, and they needed to be supported to become regular playoff teams within that league and then challenging in Europe and so on. Um, but of course, you know, we had COVID, which nobody could have foreseen. That's blown a hole in the finances, which is understandable. But it's only been that three or four years, I think. In the last fifteen, that there's been a focus on the professional game and trying to show that ensure that that is competitive. Unless that is competitive, then people aren't turning up to watch the four teams, which means that you know interest wanes. Sponsorship drifts away. TV contracts become less valuable, and it becomes a less useful breeding ground for players for the national team. So it's a kind of symbiotic relationship, and that I think that was lost. I think uh, uh, for most of the last fifteen years.
1: Yeah, obviously, one. I mean, I I guess stick for saying this, but I've always been of that that opinion that that you, you outline in, in your book that you know unless the you know the regional game or the professional game don't like the R word unless the professional game is strong then you know it's not going to filter up it's going it's not going to filter up to the to the national side and as you said we're we probably there now but you could argue that the the game as as we have argued that really the game below, uh, or the professional game, has been neglected. It's not all on the WIU. The, the regions could have done stuff better themselves as well. I think, but you look at the state of rugby in Wales now. Salary caps going down to four and a half million pounds next season. I mean that you know let, let's face it, that's not beat around the bush. That's that's whipping boy stuff. Um, you know, lots of players are likely to leave Wales as a result. Um, you know, the question that's, that's always asked. Have we got enough players of professional quality and enough money for four pro teams anymore? I know it's not as black and white as cutting a team, but do do we need to cut back? Are we at that stage now because there's been so much neglect that we can only afford three teams or two teams? What's what's your view on on that?
2: Yeah, I think it's a tricky one, isn't it? Um it, as part of um the research into the book, you know, I look back on the discussions around forming an Anglo-Welsh league in the late 90s. And the argument then was about, um, you know, England having 20 or so professional clubs. Um, They they had the Allied Dunbar Premiership 1 and Premiership 2, so they had this vision of having, you know, 20, 24 professional clubs. And into that, they wanted to bring some Welsh clubs. Um, And the WIU thought that we could afford, in terms of money and also playing uh, quality, 10 clubs. You know, they were offered five asked for 10 and then walked out and you could argue that you know if england then had 20 or visions or ambitions of having 20 professional clubs and they're now down to essentially 10 then you know can, can we support four uh four clubs um and i don't know in terms of you know playing quality probably not at the moment but then you know that's about that in the funding isn't it you know if if, if you get it's kind of um I don't know, it's kind of cutting your own legs off to, to an extent, isn't it? Because if you've if you've got ambitions to be a competitive team uh, as a national men's team, then you need plenty of players to choose from. Um, you know, you can see that uh, the countries in, in Europe with the least number of professional teams are Scotland and Italy, and they haven't won anything in the Six Nations era, you know. Um, you, know haven't, you know, Italy haven't got through to the... the the playoff stages of the, of the World Cup, um, Scotland haven't got past the quarterfinals. None of them, neither of them have really competed for Six Nations Championship. So if we reduce the number of players, the number of teams that we have and the number of players that we have much further, then you've got to wonder about how that would uh, impact on the national team. If the problem is that we're not investing enough in developing players. So if you suddenly say, well, we haven't invested in players and developing players for about 15 years, so let's cut the number of teams rather than investing in that pathway again. You know there are some encouraging signs of some good players coming through. If you limit those opportunities, then I don't know where 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 do those players go? Um, but at the moment, yeah, it's difficult to see how we can justify maintaining four fully professional, equal clubs who are all expected to compete at the same
0: level.
1: Yeah, but Ben, what's your what's your thoughts on on that?
0: I mean, it's, it's interesting, and it the thing stuck with me was looking at the book there's a a quote from about um i think it's 2013 the eddie butler quote about wales being the fifth region um it it is frustrating that we just seem to be continually having these conversations that's 10 years ago um, and as stephen jones said in the forward that this is a frustrating book to read isn't it um (laughs) <laughs> which you know maybe not the way to get it into you know, people's uh, <laughs> Christmas wish lists but uh, you know you come away from it feeling frustrated that we've gone around in circles for so long and that Eddie Butler quote is a decade old and it doesn't feel like there's anything been actioned from it what, what was it like in terms of the process of writing it yourself because you, you've done a really good job of you know making it accessible and, and, and making it an enjoyable read but you like like Stephen Jones says, you, you do feel frustrated reading it. Yeah.
2: Well, th- thanks, Roscoff. I really appreciate that. And um, Yeah, it, it was... So what I really wanted to do um, because, you know, I felt that there wasn't really a factual record of what had gone on, what had happened over the last 40 years. So, and I've, I think I mentioned this before, but there's... Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff published in the early 80s when the, when the Union were having their centenary celebrations, but then there's been nothing sort of comprehensive since then that tries to put everything in its chronological order um, and tries to address all of the things which actually did happen. Because I think, and you mentioned you know, Twitter earlier, Steph, and you know the pelters that you get sometimes on, on Twitter, and, and it is quite frustrating because you, you often have discussions that are entirely, you know, they're not they're not discussions, they're just two people stating completely contrary points of view and claiming that things happened in different ways to the way they actually happened. So one of the things that I really wanted to do um, was to try and set things out factually. So so that, that just put a, a huge emphasis on the kind of the desk research essentially, and just going back through you know, books and autobiographies and manuals and online articles, and then following up with interviews to try and tease out exactly what did happen. So that, I think one of my ambitions with it really is is to give that that record so that people can say, oh, actually, this is what happened. So there was a discussion about an Anglo-Welsh league and this is why it didn't happen. And there were discussions around whether it would be super clubs or regions or provinces or, or what in 2002, 2003. And this is why that happened. And, and the categories closed down and this is why that happened. Um, and you know, the, 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 the arguments that there have been between the union, the tensions between the union and the, and the clubs, the pressure clubs for the last 15 years, this is why they happen. And these are the events. And I was really keen to, to have that because I didn't think it existed, you know. There, there, there are bits of it that are dealt with in various books and, and, and newspaper articles. Um, but I've, I've had sort of comments of people saying that you know, when they see, because they remember lots of it, but when they see it all listed or written down in the way that it's it's written down, and I tried to make it a fairly fast-paced thing, it's only 50,000 words, it's only like hundred. 60-odd pages, I think, um, with 23 pages of references, just to, just to cover my back <laughs> for any arguments about what actually happened. Um, it, was, it was key that, that that we got that so that there is something that people can look at and think, well, actually, okay, so I know what happened here and I know why these events happened. And then you can have different opinions on on whether something should have happened or whether somebody should have done something else or whether the AA should have stepped in to save the worries or whatever. Um but that it's based on 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 facts really so i've tried to do that in a fairly kind of dispassionate kind of way even though i do have my opinions And like steph i'm a scarlet's fan so you know i was very keen to to put a positive slant on everything that scarlet said obviously but um no, i was trying to be sort of fairly um even-handed i think um and i hope that comes across but yeah it's um it's quite a it's quite a traumatic read at times i think <laughs> it's not not a kind of a not a christmas book as such but it's um so it's, it's hopefully a useful summary of, of where we've been and, and why we are where we, where we are now
1: you know you mentioned um, you know when the, the game went open um, around about that time and the WU were having discussions with the RFA about an Anglo Welsh league um two questions are difficult to answer, I suppose, but if the, the WU had accepted or well, was it five Welsh places in, in an Anglo- Welsh league at that time, do you think that things would have been a lot different for professional rugby in Wales? Do you think it would have worked a lot better down the line? And also, you get this argument from a lot of um, Welsh fans on on social media. They'll say, oh, the URC is not commercially viable for for Welsh rugby. um, Fans aren't turning up. It's difficult because the Welsh teams are struggling, so maybe that's why they're not turning up. But do, do you think Welsh rugby has... Do, do, do you think Professor Rugby Wheels can be successful in the URC? The only way I can see... I think an Anglo-Welsh league is out to the question. I think the only way it could happen is if CVC brought both leagues together and the Welsh teams are in an Anglo-Welsh conference, perhaps of of some sort of European Super League. But what's your view on on those two questions um, with regards to playing more Anglo-Welsh fixtures?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think the tragedy really is that... Um, you know, Wales has, has always been a club-based rugby structure and and was for 120 years. Um, and that that was our tradition, that was our rugby culture, as it was in England and France. And it wasn't to, that, to the same extent in Ireland and Scotland. So, you know, it, it, when those discussions were being held in the late 90s about, um, you know, creating an Anglo-Welsh league, um, there was a real opportunity there for us to, to, because we'd lost them for about 10 years or so. You know, when when England established their leagues and we established ours in Wales in the late 80s, early 90s, we lost those traditional, or some of those traditional fixtures. And it was an opportunity to reinstitute them. Um, and, and we kind of blew it really, because that was, that was kind of, I think, naturally where the Welsh game fitted. Um, and of course... You know, in demanding, we had nine Premier Division clubs at the time, so nine ostensibly professional clubs, um, and the union wanted ten. Play- the wanted ten places in an Anglo Welsh league, and within four years we were down to five anyway, and within another year we were down to four professional teams because you know we couldn't we couldn't sustain you know six, let alone ten, um, and it was a huge missed opportunity. So we may not have. You know, and we may have ended up where we are now, but we just started from a position of greater strength, I think, because you had at that time you had the excitement of the Heidegger Cup coming in, the European Cup, and you had those Anglo Welsh games, which were always um, you know, buzzing, they were big events, home and away. You had fans travelling, and obviously if you if you're in South Wales, you can get to most of the English club grounds in no more than three or four hours, some of them within an hour or so. Um, so that was a huge missed opportunity. So it may not have been any different. Now we may, you know, England may still have found themselves with only ten clubs. We may still have found ourselves with the four clubs that we have struggling. But we just started from a stronger position, I think. Um, in terms of the URC, I don't know. You know, I mean, Stephen Jones says in the forward, as you mentioned, that Ben, that you know, he doesn't think that the, he says that the URC does does little for climate change and even less for Welsh rugby. You now, there is an argument. <laughs> there that you know it's it's kind of an irresponsible league in a sense that if you've got a you know a a league a domestic league where you're traveling thousands of miles and you're taking you know 12-hour plane journeys to to play the game in your domestic league something's gone badly wrong somewhere um it isn't creating the income for um for the welsh game and it isn't creating the interest among supporters you know, even allowing for the fact that there are some fantastic teams. I mean, you can't argue with the quality of some of the South African teams and some of the Irish teams, especially. Um, it is working to an extent. even know, the Scottish teams and the Italian teams are relatively successful. But yeah, it's um it's not working for Wales, really, is it? And you know, I think as you say, Steph, I don't think an Anglo Welsh league is a realistic prospect now. But you know, you could if there is a um, you know, a URC plus English Premiership tie-up, which seems to be what is being discussed. I mean, for all all the talk of a British and Irish league or an Anglo-Welsh league, it is essentially the URC plus England, I think, is what, what is mainly being discussed. Um, there, is, there is an opportunity there. You know, if there are 14 English and Welsh clubs and there are, you know, 12 or maybe more in, uh, in the other countries, in, in Ireland, Scotland, Italy and South Africa, then that may be something worth exploring. It is something that was certainly you got a bit of interest, I think, in Wales. It would it would reinvigorate the game, but I don't know how realistic that is.
1: Do you fancy that, Ben? I'm going to cover Bath and Leicester against Scarless and Cardiff every other week?
0: Well, I mean that's that's the dream effectively. And you know, you think as you say, you know, maybe we'd still be in the same boat had we gone with the English clubs, you know, back in the in the late nineties. But I suppose you you'd be living in a world where you don't have those regrets if you were in the, in the same boat, you know, I think if you'd have turned 21 in the late 90s and said, in two decades' time, you'll be in a league with South African teams, Irish teams, Scottish teams and Italian teams, that it just would have been a completely foreign concept. And it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel natural, I suppose. And I think, you know, we're seeing it now. It feels like it, it's getting cheapened further to an extent. I think South African teams in, in the Champions Cup almost... Dilutes that even more, you know. I think for the English teams, having Saracens go to the Bulls on the weekend that's nice for them. But when when the Scarlets, you know, are playing the Cheetahs, was it last year in Europe? It just, just feels like more of the same. And those 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 Anglo Welsh games they're the, the one things we really want, and it's it's the one things that we we, we just tend to never get. Um, I mean, look at look at the ticket sales at the Arms Park this week. Have they got is it hundred tickets left?
2: Yeah. You know, yeah, and I, it's, it's it's that kickoff time that people don't like. is the eight o'clock on Saturday kickoff time, and and still, as you say, it's selling it because it's an attractive game.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. I, I agree with Stephen Jones completely, and I, I, I have to be fine having toured with Stephen Jones. I I know his opinions on the URC <laughs> um, all, all too well, um but he he is he is completely right, you know, and. To you often feel bad knocking the URC because it just feels like, you know, kicking a dead horse at times. But, you know, it, it's not where we should be. And it, it is frustrating that it's just the same old conversations. And we're just moving further and further away from that Anglo Welsh League, aren't we?
2: We're just not giving ourselves the best opportunity. And and it's not in our gift anymore, anyway. You know, we, it, it isn't that we are rejecting, and as far as I know, anyway, that we are rejecting an Anglo Welsh League. It's just not not on the table and hasn't really been on the table for twenty years. There were discussions in the, the mid 2010s when he had you know the worst of that, that of those tensions between the union and the and the clubs. Um and there was the threat of the four leaving, um the four Welsh clubs leaving and joining the English Premiership. And that that was a, an opportunity, but really it hasn't really been on the table. Um but yeah, that that is, you know, that would give us the best chance. So we're not giving ourselves the best chance of Creating a sustainable and vibrant domestic game. Because we're playing in the wrong league, essentially. You know, um, which isn't to say that everything would be fine and everything would be you know tremendous so if we were if we were in an Anglo West League. We as you know as we discussed, we may have ended up in the same place. We may still be struggling, we may, you know, the clubs still may be financially struggling and not competitive in that league either. Um, but it would give us a better chance because you know i mean you see occasionally in europe these days it is occasionally these days because europe has kind of lost its luster in part because you know most of the regions are most of the countries involved in europe all play in the same league anyway so it's it, it isn't the uh there isn't the novelty to the games anymore but you know it's um it's it's kind of not not really generating that interest so yeah I mean, it would be great but then again you know if you're under 30 years of age you don't know any different really you know, it's, it's kind of it's always been this setup it's always been you know Welsh regions not clubs playing in um you know in a in a celtic and then an expanded to a celtic league um you know people may not be aware of or remember too much about those those anglo welsh games of of years ago, because there used to be, you know, major events in the calendar. You know, the Bath Ragdoll Doll game was a massive game. You know, the Swansea-Harlequins, Easter Saturday game, these are all big games, you know, Cardiff and Leicester and so on. Um, and not having those and having, you know, even very good Irish and South African and Scottish and, and Italian teams uh, as opponents doesn't bring the crowds in from within Wales, and it certainly doesn't bring in travelling fans either. So, you know, you you really sort of trying to operate with one if not both hands tied behind your back really
1: do you think there is any light at the end of the tunnel because <clears throat> we've got this narrative now that it's short-term pain for long-term gain in terms of blood in some of the younger players at regional level and there are some good young players you know we've seen like some Mackenzie Martin Evan Daniel um Cardiff um you know and then you know, there's um, there's a lot of really good young players at the regions. There's, there's no doubt about that whatsoever. Um, but you, you just look at it, I look at it, and I think, is it actually going to be long-term gain? Because if the budgets keep getting pushed down, if there's you know a salary cap and it keeps going down, which could happen, but, or even if it just stays where it is, they're not going to be able to afford to retain all these players because, you know, you're going to have... It's one thing George North leaving, right? In an ideal world, you'd want to keep North of Wales because you want to see star players. But that's one thing I think people can, okay, end of his career, etc. people can accept. But when you're losing Joe Hawkins, you know, okay, you know, he made a decision, you know, that, that's, that's down to him and, and his agent. But when you're losing players in that age profile, that age bracket, that's when I personally start to worry. And there's, uh, there's flight risks all over Welsh rugby. It's not just players who um, are current internationals, like an an agent who I'm not going to name, told me that English, French and Japanese clubs are acutely aware of the situation in Wales and how players are feeling and stuff. And they're going to use that. You know, Welsh rugby is a buyer's market. And that's what I'm worried about. You know, we could have, um, and another person told me that he expects so many players to leave Wales at the end of this season that, you know, you're saying, God, are, are we even going to have enough quality players for four professional teams next season. So that's my concern. Um, and also they say that, you know, you get a lot of people saying in the union, now we're on the PRB, we're, we're cutting back to make the game more sustainable. But I've yet to see a plan to get us out of this situation. How are we going to raise money to get us out of the situation? And then you've got the, the Welsh government loan and they're, they're paying it back at an interest, interest rate, was it 8.25%? For me, I'm still struggling. Even though these young players are, are got potential, and again, blooded, I'm still struggling to see light at the end of the tunnel. So that's you know, I'm I'm a pretty negative person, but I'm I'm struggling to be honest.
2: Yeah, that that loan. I, mean, I listened to your podcast. Was it last week or the week before with Simon Mudrak from um, from Scarlets? And you know, he was talking about um, that loan basically, and that before you know, so, so the, the budgets that the the clubs, the professional clubs, regions, whatever are, are operating under are, are tight anyway. And then it's kind of a couple of million a year just servicing the loan. So they're already starting from way behind everybody else. Um, you know, the Irish provinces, it seems, have been given a grant, so they're not paying those back. So they're on bigger budgets and they're not repaying a grant a, you know a loan, so they're much, much stronger. Um and yeah, it's it's I mean it's kind of crippling, isn't it? Because that loan needs to be paid back, as I understand it, over I think eight years. I think it's ten years initially. So I've got eight years left. Um, and you know, as you said, there, Steph, what's going to be left in eight years if 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 the you know the pro teams are having to find two million a year just to service that 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 debt, then they're not going to be able to to rebuild their budget. I mean, one thing I would say, I think, is that my understanding is that um, that the well-intentioned um, uh, plan that the WU came up with along with the PRB about four or five years ago which was to sort of incentivize, incentivize the clubs to keep Welsh players in Wales to keep the best players here by paying effectively paying 80% of their salary has um, kind of really backfired in that it's created huge inflation and you know, salary costs have spiralled um, and there are you know there were last season and there still are this season because contracts are still being run down um, players who are you know, over, over over earning much much more than players of an equivalent standard in in England, for instance. You know, there would be lions in, uh, you know, British lions, British and Irish lions in at a club in England, who'd be earning less than a than somebody who was rarely in the in the Wales squad in Wales in in a similar position. So so that definitely needed to be reset because I think that inflation had got out of control. Um, but there's but there's resetting, and then there's cutting budgets from you know six and a half, seven millions of four and a half in in three years. And that's going to have a massive impact. Um, the One hope, I guess, you might have is that for, cl- for clubs like Cardiff and the Scarlets, maybe a lot of their key players have already gone. You know, the key expensive players have already gone. Um, you know, at the Scarlets, there are some experienced players left and expensive players left where they seem to be being marginalised. So that there are some reasonably high-earning players at the Scarlets who aren't playing, um, aren't being picked, you know, if, if they're fit. So, sorry, I mean, they are fit and they aren't being picked, so so that might play itself out reasonably, kind of organically. But you know, the, the Ospreys are going to be facing at the end of the season definitely because they've got a number of, of high union players there. But yeah, it's, um, it's it's difficult to see how you turn this around with that middle stone of this 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 debt um, around their necks, which isn't their debt. You know, I think it's important to stress that you know that was a, a loan that the WRU took out to cover its own payments to the clubs during Covid you know it isn't money that they've just given to the regions to cover their own you know profligacy or their own overspending you know they they indicated the regions would be having 26 million or so in 2021 um and they give them three you know so and then they give them a loan to cover the rest of it and then made them repay the loan you know which is something I'm going to try with my mortgage provider when it comes up for renewal next uh, next couple of months but um it, it doesn't help, does it? it it's, again, this thing of, of the regions not being given the chance to flourish. There was only a telling comment, you know, when talking about that loan. Um, it may have been in one of your articles, Steph, I think, if I remember from a few years ago, where Steve Phillips, who was then the, the CEO of the WIU, WA, was asked, you know, how how would the regions repay this this debt? How were they going to go about it? And he said, well, that's a matter for the regions, you know. <laughs> not my problem it, basically. You know, they've they've been landed with this millstone and and it's up to them to find a way out of it. We're not gonna help, basically. Um, which is which is really dispiriting because it it it, it makes it clear, I think. It kinda of, it kind of encapsulates my kind of my impression of the last fifteen years or so, which is that the W has set itself in competition with the four professional regions. So the comment you made, Ben, about um, you know, quoting Eddie Butler, uh, quoting the book who says, you know, that, that Wales is kind of the fifth region and it did feel like that. that that fifth region had all of the power and it used the power that it had to make sure that the other four didn't thrive. <laughs> you know, And that's just a deeply dysfunctional way of looking at the you know the rugby
0: ecosystem of the game in Wales. Because that's that's the added layer of that loan, isn't it? It's effectively, it's compensation for players that Wales use. And the irony is now that they'll be paying it for the next eight years. And the sort of the players that they were paying it for will have long gone. Because we can't afford to keep them. Yeah, and of course that just that, just adds that to that meant, that Fasco level. Yeah, and
2: that that meant, you know I mean during that the 2021 season, you know, the 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 union weren't paying for that release for the players. The players were released anyway, and they, they came within you know a play of winning the Grand Slam. You know, they lost in deep injury time in Paris in the last game and and Basically, the regions or the clubs were were paying for the privilege of their players not being available for most of the season, um, which is which is just you know not not on. <laughs> it's, not, it's not fair, you know. Um, so yeah, so there needs to be a, a real reset of that that attitude, I think. And you know, as I was saying earlier, there are some signs that the 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 attitude of the union of the new executive and the new board is less confrontational at the moment is more collaborative are they talking about needing to collaborate more about working together about helping the 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 regional game or the professional game to be successful and to flourish um but i don't think we have all that much time because as you were saying earlier steph you know that there's a big risk that you know we've we've already lost you know there are probably i don't know there's probably a team's worth of players who aren't available to us because they've left Partly as a result, at least partly as a result of the financial constraint. If we lose another 10, 15 again, you know, at the end of this season, I mean, this is from from all of the Welsh clubs. Then all of a sudden you're talking about, you know, 20, 25, 30 of the best players that Wales has produced not playing in Wales, which is going to further diminish the quality of the game here. You know, and then and then you have the knock on the end of performances declining, fans walking away, sponsors walking away and all of that. So it's it's there's a real serious risk that this reset could become just the a never-ending spiral of decline, really, that we can't arrest it because it all just feeds it to each other. So it's a bit of a challenge for the new WIU, I think.
1: So I, I was told by somebody who would know that the maximum an academy player can earn in Wales is £30,000, and that includes national insurance, it's all in, and in England is £50,000. So there are regional players in Wales are earning less than some academy players playing in English Premiership, which emphasizes the you know the the um, the challenges that we've got in in terms of keeping hold of players in Wales. And I'm glad that you've used um, the term that we haven't got time on our side either. And I think that's absolutely right, not just from a financial point of view, but you look at you know you you just look at the the interest levels in Wales. It's, it's not very high. I know you've got the the city, you know, Cardiff obviously look going for a sale out against Bath. That's, that's fantastic. Um, obviously, Cardiff have got stuff going from the, the other regions maybe haven't got in terms of the fact they're in the city centre, etc. And they can they, they can sell it as a day out rather than, than just a rugby game. But, you know, if you're a man or a woman in your early 20s or you're in your late teens, are you really going to want to spend your time, not just spend money, but spend your time watching the Scarletts Lose maybe to Benetton or or, or the Dragons against Zebra, etc. You're not, do you and the, I, I. I'm. A lot of people seem to think that it's as easy as you know they get a bit of success and fans come back. But I think there's a lot of damage been done. You know, pe- society's changed. It's not just about I don't want to go and watch the Scarlets or the Ospreys because I can go and watch the Swans. People have got other things to do. We're not trying to just get their money. You're trying to get their time as well. And the longer the shambles goes on, you know, the off the field stuff and all the fighting there, which people, the vast majority of rugby fans have switched off to, just the diehards concentrate on that. And, you know, I, I think it's going to be very difficult to get supporters back in. That's my worry, the, the 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 wound is so deep that the infection can't be cured. And eventually you have to, you know, amputate a limb and that means getting rid of a region, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I honestly don't think that Welsh rugby's got time on its side. I think we we need they need to find some funds. They need to find some oxygen so that the budgets can go up to an acceptable level, and then work on renegotiating this this um, Welsh government loan and 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 hopefully trying to find some more investment. And I think you got to give Cardiff Cardiff credit as well. You know they, they've taken matters into their own hands. They've signed heads of terms with, um, you know what what we're led to believe to be some quite quite wealthy. Um, uh investors so um credit to them but obviously uh you know the the welsh regions are, are a difficult sell at the moment
2: yeah absolutely they are and, and and as you say there is that risk isn't it that you um it, it's very easy to get out of the habit of doing something isn't it and it's far more difficult to build the habit and and, and some of that is, is just about the nature of the game the modern game really is in that you know you can't have you know, back in the merit table days, you'd have clubs playing 40 games a season. You know, we'd be playing Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, and a lot of the same players would turn out two or three times a week. And obviously you can't do that, given the nature, the physical nature of the game. But what that means is that you don't have that regularity, so you don't have a game every other Saturday at home, and you don't have midweek games you can go to in the way that you do have if you're a football supporter. So if you mentioned the Swans there, if, you're going to, if you support the Swans, or if you're a sports fan in Swansea you can go and watch the Swans at home every other Saturday and and very often in, in midweek as well. Or you can kind of scour the papers and look online and try and find when the Ospreys are next home, you know. Um, and it, or, the, or the Scarlet as well, obviously, the um, Swans fans in the in area as well. So you're looking for, you're trying to find the game and watch this competition and who are they playing now and why, you know, this is like 5 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon or this is 8 o'clock on a Friday or this one's at 1 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And, and this is a different tournament, and, you know, who are these teams? I don't know who these players are, that kind of thing. So it's very easy to then – and then all of the games are on TV pretty much as well. So it's very it's very uh, easy to just say, you know, it's it's early December, you know, it's mid-December now, and it's cold and it's wet, and, you know, my team are playing on the box in, in an hour. Shall I go and watch them, or, or shall I just say you're you're watching? Um, and it's very tempting to not to do that. So, and once people get out of that habit um, – it's difficult to rebuild it and it's just difficult to maintain that habit if your team's getting thumped every week. So it's, it's not much fun to go knowing you're not competitive, you know. It's it's one thing to, to go into a match and think, Oh, you know, Leinster are coming over, they're favourites, but you know, we should be within five or six points of them and then there's a chance that we could do something later on. Well that's out of the window, you know. There's no way any of the reachers are gonna think they've got a prayer against Leinster. You know, it's kind of keep it under twenty, under thirty, under fifty, whatever. You know. So that's not going to keep people coming and it's going to be the diehards as you say Steph you know, it's going to be people who are in that habit who whose social lives revolve around watching Scarlet or the you know, the Dragons or whoever who are going to be turning out. Um performances are important though if teams are winning then people do turn up we saw that with the Scarlet end of last year when they went on that run and got to the semi-finals of the Challenge Cup we saw it with the Scarlet again in the mid-2010s when they had those couple of years where they were successful in the Celtic League of the Pro 12 Pro 14 and got to the Champions Cup semi-final so it does bring people in because things become an event and you know just watching your team who are in fourteenth in the URC, playing the team who are twelfth in the URC with nothing much on it with another two thousand people isn't gonna be particularly something that's gonna kind of get your heart be racing, really is it?
1: No, definitely not.
0: We We said we'd uh, touch on Europe. Um so I suppose we we, we better had um as we said at the, at the head of the podcast, it was all a mixed weekend, obviously heavy defeat and to lose for Cardiff as we expected. But again, there's positives they can take for the youngsters. Um, Scarlets lost out in cast and the Dragons and, and the Ospreys managed to get off to, to winning starts. Um, St- Steph, uh, I mean, you made your feelings clear at the start of the podcast, but how, how did you view the the opening weekend of, uh, of Europe?
1: Um. I mean, obviously it was very difficult for Cardiff. I mean, going out to Toulouse, I mean, that that Toulouse team would have beaten a lot of, or at least given a really good game to a lot of tier one test teams. Probably, probably would have got a couple of, of wins. That's, that's the quality they had, you know, with Antoine Dupont, uh, Ramos, uh, Flamont, you know, I could go on and on. So that was always going to be a, a step too far. However, there were some positives. Mackenzie Martin, I think, you know, he's playing well. He's got a real, real edge about him. Um, so I think he, he Warren Gatlin probably would have been impressed with him. Um, you know, Evan Daniel, I think he's he's a good player as well. Um, so there were some small signs of hope there. But, I mean, asking Cardiff to beat Toulouse, you know, it's like asking Newport County to beat Man City at the moment, isn't it? It's... Uh, the gulf in finances and quality and just raw physicality is is enormous. Um so we've got to think about that. I think I think it'd be um a lot closer against Bath this weekend. Bath Bath had a good win up in Elst um well, at home against Ulster. They were really good. I, I think they'd win, but I think Cardiff can can give them a game. I think um you know the Ospreys, um it was a good win for them. Um Benetton are a quality team now. You know, they're, they're no mugs beating Bernard a narrowly is a good result. oh you know, it's not it's not like it would have been in the past. Or oh, should have won by more. They're a serious outfit. Um so I, think, I think that's a good win for the Ospreys. Dowie Lake was was obviously outstanding. Uh, scoring four tries. Jack Morgan obviously played really well. The Scarlet's there's plenty of effort there, but they were they were second best in every position. You know, they, their pack is woefully underpowered. Uh, the line out, uh, the line out was a shambles. I think Albert Vandenberg has got a Got to come under a bit of scrutiny, and I think you know it's one thing getting beaten up because they haven't got the calibre of player, but to lose so many of your own throws, come on now. You know, the professional rugby players have got to do better than that. Um, there were some good performances. Ben Williams had a great game, thought he was a really good player. Um, uh, Ted, Teddy leather the barrows defying the odds as well. Good, good story, obviously, come from Swansea Uni. Um, really, really put his hand up, and obviously goes out saying for every podcast, you know. Johan Lloyd, really in the frame for the Six Nations. Um, so, so obviously that that was you know, there was some passes in the main, it was a, it was a disappointing. Result. Cash should have won by a lot more really. Um, Scrolling flat to the scarless. I think Dragons had a good win. Obviously Oya o- N- Naks they, 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 it's not their priority um, for a lot of the game it was in the balance, but they found a way Rio Dia had a good game, so he was good to Steph Hughes, very underrated player, did well. Um, so I suppose when you think about it, there were some positives, but uh, you know, on on the whole, you know, we're, we're a long way off competing with Europe's best, aren't we?
0: Yeah, I mean, we are, but I suppose if you look at what the Scarlets did last year in terms of you know getting to a semi final and, and what that generated, we've got three teams in in the Challenge Cup. I think Cardiff in the Champions Cup is just about for those young players enjoying the experience. But do, do we feel that? any of these three teams in the Challenge Cup can maybe replicate what the Scarless did last year?
1: I think the Ospreys have a chance. Because I think the Ospreys I think I think the Ospreys have the best pack. I think that they're the only team that can when they're at full strength that can sort of compete with the better teams physically. You know, they've they've got I think one of the commentators said, I can't remember who it was said that they've got the their own mini bomb squad to come off the bench. So obviously they got you know, Gar Tom is Wales' first choice loose head. Nicky Smith, one of the best most destructive uh scrimmaging loose heads in in the URC, you know, both as the best scrimmaging tight end in Wales. You know, they got Beard, Fender is coming through really well. I like Reese Davis. They got Lake, Jack Morgan. So they can compete physically, which gives them a chance. I imagine they'd get to the, um, if they got to the last four, there'd probably be a few teams that could beat them because teams from the Champions Cup, remember, will will drop down. But I think the Ospreys are probably the one team I think that can have a decent run in Europe this year. I'm not sure about the Scarlets. They've got some really good attacking players, but as I said, the pack is really, really, you know, underpowered. You know, they've got some injuries. Lousy and Feta being fit with help, but. Um, and they got a tough pool. So I think the Ospreys are the, the realistic hope of, of having, a, having a decent run in Europe.
0: Sai, so, do, do you share that sort of pessimism on, on the Scarlets? I mean, I suppose after the last hour everything we discussed, it's a bit like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, isn't it? But, uh...
2: <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I, I agree entirely with Stephanie. It's. Um... The Ospreys do look the, the best equipped and for exactly that reason they, they look as if they can cope physically with most teams, maybe not, you know, the, the Larochells and the Leinsters and, and so on, but they're in a different competition. So in terms of the Challenge Cup, um, you know, the draw isn't the worst. You know, they've got Montpellier away, who they they've got, they beat last year in the Champions Cup, they've got Perpignan at home. So those are the bottom two clubs in the top fourteen. You know, so if you're gonna have to play somebody from the top fourteen, then you know play the bottom two because their focus is going to be on surviving the top 14 and not not the Challenge Cup. So, you know, they will have a chance. It'll be interesting to see what they do actually, the Ospreys this week, whether they put out a strong team, given that it's uh, it's an away game or whether they rotate and and save their best for, for the Scarlet Unboxing Boxing Day, unfortunately, which, which may be maybe what happens. But um but yeah, I mean the thing with with a lot of the 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 Welsh clubs at the moment, the ospreys accept, accepted, I think, is that um they do have some good players in in among the loose forwards and in the backs, um, and there's some good ball players in the in the front five as well. But what they don't have is that physical robustness to to handle you know seriously powerful teams. So you know the Scarlet aren't have been overpowered in pretty much every game really. You know I mean they they eventually got on top of, of Cardiff, but then you know Cardiff are struggling up front. They haven't got the the heftiest front five, although there's a lot of potential among some of those players. So it's it's, um, it's it's a case of tempering expectations, I think, isn't it? We can't expect any of these clubs really to to make it far in Europe, with with the possible exception of the Ospreys, because they do have that pack, they do have that power, that um, and they've got a reasonably favourable draw. Um, that means that you know they might be able to might be able to do something. You know, I mean, the the Scarlet draw, for instance. I mean, just just in terms of their draw is is just you know. They've, they've beat the castro third, and you now they go to Clermont next, to one of the one of the aristocrats of the French rugby. Not next, but in the next uh, the next time they're away. So, yeah, yeah, difficult to see how the scarlets get very far. Cardiff, obviously in the Champions Cup, can't see them doing an enormous amount. Although what they do have, as we were mentioning early earlier, is those two big event games. They've got Bath and Harlequins at home, which is going to, you know, engender a bit of interest and a bit of you know, bit of support there, which is. Just going to give them a bit of a boost, just gives the whole club a bit of a lift. You know, the scarlets by by comparison, they've got black lion and um, edinburgh at home in, in our pool, so that's not going to be quite as exciting. It's not going to bring in the crowds in the same way. So, yeah, it's um, it's just going to be a tough season, I think, uh, in the usc, but also in in europe. we have just got to have to temper our expectations. So it is about you know, which young players have putting their hands up. And Johan Lloyd, as you said several times, lads, on the podcast over the last few weeks, is playing incredibly well in a team that's going backwards. So to be doing that in a team that's struggling as the Scarlet are is, is impressive. You know, that Mackenzie Martin looks a real gem. Um, you know, not, not to put too much pressure on him, with three games in, but he does look like a re- seriously good player or could be a seriously good player. Um, you know, De La Roo did okay as well coming in. You know, the fullbacks are going well at Cardiff. You know, it's, there's, there's a lot of um, promise around. Um, but it is promised. There's kind of that. What we don't have a lot of at the moment in Wales is is that that tranche of mid twenties experienced, settled players who've been there and they've, they've done it and they know what they're doing to help bring through the new generation. We've got a lot of we've got some sort of test standard players and very good experienced players. Then we've got a lot of kids and there's not not an enormous amount in between. And I think that's where we're lacking is is that kind of. That, that sort of toughness that, that you need to, to survive in certainly in Europe but, but also in the USA
0: these days no absolutely and I suppose the last thing you want to do is you don't want to almost develop those young players through exposure to all that without those older players and then lose them in a couple of years time because of the financial situation when they do suddenly become good enough to, to, to be there on their own right so that's I guess that's the theme of the, 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 the whole podcast really is that you know even the sort of positive to seeing with youngsters coming through right now is is sort of undercut with, you know, what happens next. Um, Well, gents, it's it's been a a fascinating podcast. I think we will uh, call it time there. Um, I apologize in advance if you're listening, if you picked up any audio issues. My laptop has been just an absolute nightmare for the last hour hopefully the the editor can sort it out in the edit and it'll sound fine to you listening at home if you have enjoyed the podcast do make sure to leave it a review wherever you listen to your podcast it really does help us out uh, a massive thank you to sy for joining us on this podcast and to steph as always and until the next one goodbye